Chapter Sixteen, Volume Two of Marius the Epicurean by Walter Pater. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen, Second Thoughts, and Marius, for his part, was grave enough. The discourse of Cornelius Fronto, with its wide prospect over the human, the spiritual horizon, had set him on a review on a review of the isolating narrowness, in particular, of his own theoretic scheme. Long after the very latest roses were faded, when the town had departed to country villas, or the baths, or the war, he remained behind in Rome, anxious to try the lastingness of his own Epicurean rose-garden, setting to work over again, and deliberately passing from point to point of his old argument with himself, down to its practical conclusions that age and our own have much in common many difficulties and hopes let the reader pardon me if here and there i seem to be passing from marius to his modern representatives from rome to paris or london what really were its claims as a theory of practice of the sympathies that determine practice it had been a theory avowedly of loss and gain so to call it of an economy if, therefore, it missed something in the commerce of life, which some other theory of practice was able to include, if it made a needless sacrifice, then it must be, in a manner, inconsistent with itself, and lack theoretic completeness. Did it make such a sacrifice? What did it lose, or cause one to lose? And we may note, as Marius could hardly have done, that serenicism is ever the characteristic philosophy of youth, ardent but narrow in its survey, sincere but apt to become one-sided or even fanatical. It is one of those subjective and partial ideas based on vivid because limited apprehension of the truth of one aspect of experience, in this case, of the beauty of the world and the brevity of man's life there, which it may be said to be the special vocation of the young to express. In the school of Serene, in that comparatively fresh Greek world, we see this philosophy where it is least blasé, as we say, in its most pleasant, its blithest, and yet perhaps its wisest form, youthfully bright in the youth of European thought. But it grows young again for a while in almost every youthful soul. It is spoken of sometimes as the appropriate utterance of jaded men, but in them it can hardly be sincere or by the nature of the case, an enthusiasm. Walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes is indeed most often, according to the supposition of the book from which I quote it, the counsel of the young, who feel that the sunshine is pleasant along their veins, and wintry weather, though in a general sense foreseen, a long way off. The youthful enthusiasm or fanaticism, the self-abandonment to one favorite mode of thought or taste which occurs quite naturally at the outset of every really vigorous intellectual career, finds its special opportunity in a theory such as that so carefully put together by Marius, just because it seems to call on one to make the sacrifice accompanied by a vivid sensation of power and will, of what others value. Sacrifice of some conviction, or doctrine, or supposed first principle, for the sake of that clear-eyed intellectual consistency which is like spotless bodily cleanliness or scrupulous personal honor, and has itself for the mind of the youthful student when he first comes to appreciate it the fascination of an ideal. 
The Cyrenaic doctrine, then, realized as a motive of strenuousness or enthusiasm, is not so properly the utterance of the jaded Epicurean, as of the strong young man in all the freshness of thought and feeling, fascinated by the notion of raising his life to the level of a daring theory, while in the first genial heat of existence the beauty of the physical world strikes potently upon his wide-open, unwearied senses. He discovers a great new poem every spring, with a hundred delightful things he too has felt, but which have never been expressed, or at least never so truly, before. The workshops of the artists, who can select and set before us what is really most distinguished in visible life, are open to him. He thinks that the old Platonic, or the new Baconian philosophy, has been better explained than by the authors themselves, or with some striking original development, this very month. In the quiet heat of early summer, on the dusty gold morning, the music becomes louder at intervals, above the hum of voices from some neighboring church, among the flowering trees, valued now perhaps only for the poetically rapt faces among priests or worshippers, or the mere skill and eloquence, it may be, of its preachers of faith and righteousness. In his scrupulous idealism, indeed, he too feels himself to be something of a priest, and that devotion of his days to the contemplation of what is beautiful, a sort of perpetual religious service. Afar off, how many fair cities and delicate sea-coasts await him! At that age, with minds of a certain constitution, no very choice or exceptional circumstances are needed to provoke an enthusiasm something like this. Life in modern London, even, in the heavy glow of summer, is stuff sufficient for the fresh imagination of a youth to build its palace of art of, and the very sense and enjoyment of an experience in which all is new are but enhanced, like the glow of summer itself, by the thought of its brevity, giving him something of a gambler's zest in the apprehension, by dexterous act or diligently appreciative thought of the highly colored moments which are to pass away so quickly. At bottom, perhaps, in his elaborately developed self-consciousness, his sensibilities, his almost fierce grasp upon the things he values at all, he has, beyond all others, an inward need of something permanent in its character, to hold by, of which circumstance also he may be partly aware, and that, as with the brilliant Claudio in Measure for Measure, it is in truth, but darkness he is encountering like a bride. But the inevitable falling of the curtain is probably distant, and in the daylight at least it is not often that he really shudders at the thought of the grave, the weight above, the narrow world, and its company within. When the thought of it does occur to him, he may say to himself, Well, and the rude monk, for instance, who has renounced all this on the security of some dim world beyond it, really acquiesces in that fifth act amid all the consoling ministries around him, as little as I should at this moment. Though I may hope that, as at the real ending of a play, however well acted, I may already have had quite enough of it and find a true well-being in eternal sleep. And precisely in this circumstance that, consistently with the function of youth in general, Cyrenicism will always be more or less the special philosophy or prophecy of the young, when the ideal of a rich experience comes to them in the ripeness of the receptive, if not of the reflective powers, precisely in this circumstance, if we rightly consider it, lies the duty prescribed corrective of that philosophy. 
for it is by its exclusiveness, and by negation rather than positively, that such theories fail to satisfy us permanently, and what they really need for their correction is the complementary influence of some greater system in which they may find their due place, that Sturmundrang of the spirit, as it has been called, that ardent and special apprehension of half-truths, and the enthusiastic and, as it were, prophetic advocacy of which, devotion to the truth, in the case of the young, apprehending but one point at a time in the great circumference, most usually embodies itself, is leveled down safely enough afterwards as in history, so in the individual, by the weakness and mere weariness, as well as by the maturer wisdom of our nature. And though truth indeed resides, as has been said in the whole, in harmonizings and adjustments like this, yet those special apprehensions may still owe their full value in this sense of the whole, to that earlier one-sided but ardent preoccupation with them. Cynicism and Serenicism They are the earlier Greek forms of Roman Stoicism and Epicureanism, and in that world of old Greek thought we may notice with some surprise that in a little while the nobler form of Cyrenicism, Cyrenicism cured of its faults, met the nobler form of Cynicism halfway. Starting from opposed points, they merged, each in its most refined form, in a single ideal of temperance or moderation. Something of the same kind may be noticed regarding some later phases of Cyrenic theory. If it starts with considerations opposed to the religious temper, which the religious temper holds it a duty to repress, it is like it, nevertheless, and very unlike any lower development of temper in its stress and earnestness, its serious application to the pursuit of a very unworldly type of perfection. The saint and the Cyrenaic lover of beauty, it may be thought, would at least understand each other better than either would understand the mere man of the world. Carry their respective positions a point further, shift the terms a little, and they might actually touch. Perhaps all theories of practice tend, as they rise to their best, as understood by their worthiest representatives, to identification with each other. For the variety of men's possible reflections on their experience, as of that experience itself, is not really so great as it seems. And as the highest and most disinterested ethical formulae, filtering down into men's everyday existence, reach that same poor level of vulgar egotism, so we may fairly suppose that all the highest spirits, from whatever contrasted points they have started, would yet be found to entertain in the moral consciousness, realized by themselves, much the same kind of mental company, to hold, far more than might be thought probable at first sight, the same personal types of character, and even the same artistic and literary types in esteem or aversion to convey, all of them alike, the same savor of unworldliness. And Serenicism, or Epicureanism too, new or old, may be noticed, in proportion to the completeness of its development, to approach as to the nobler form of Cynicism, so also to the more nobly developed phases of the old or traditional morality. In the gravity of its conception of life, in its pursuit after nothing less than a perfection in its apprehension of the value of time, the passion and the seriousness which are like a consecration, la passion et la sérieux qui consacrent, it may be conceived as regards its main drift to be not so much opposed to the old morality as an exaggeration of one special motive in it. 
some cramping narrowing costly preference of one part of his own nature and of the nature of things to another marius seemed to have detected in himself meantime in himself as also in the old masters of the cyrenaic philosophy if they did realize the monochronous hedone as it was called the pleasure of the ideal now if certain moments of their lives were high-pitched passionately colored intent with sensation and a kind of knowledge which in its vivid clearness was like sensation if now and then they apprehended the world in its fullness and had a vision almost beatific of ideal personalities in life and art yet these moments were a very costly matter they paid a great price for them in the sacrifice of a thousand possible sympathies of things only to be enjoyed through sympathy from which they detached themselves in intellectual pride in loyalty to a mere theory that would take nothing for granted and assent to no approximate or hypothetical truths in their unfriendly repellent attitude towards the greek religion and the old greek morality surely they had been but faulty economists the greek religion was then alive then still more than in its later day of dissolution the higher view of it was possible even for the philosopher its story made little or no demand for a reasoned or formal acceptance a religion which had grown through and through man's life with so much natural strength had meant so much for so many generations which expressed so much of their hopes in forms so familiar and so winning linked by associations so manifold to man as he had been and was a religion like this one would think might have had its uses even for a philosophic skeptic yet those beautiful gods with the whole round of their poetic worship the school of cyrene definitely renounced the old greek morality again with all its imperfections was certainly a comely thing yes a harmony a music in men's ways one might well hesitate to jar the merely aesthetic sense might have had a legitimate satisfaction in that spectacle of that fair order of choice manners, in those attractive conventions enveloping so gracefully the whole of life, ensuring some sweetness, some security at least against offense, in the intercourse of the world. Beyond an obvious utility it could claim indeed but custom, use and wont, as we say, for its sanction but then one of the advantages of that liberty of spirit among the serenacs in which through theory they had become dead to theory so that all theory as such was really indifferent to them and indeed nothing valuable but in its tangible ministration to life was precisely this that it gave them free play in using as their ministers or servants things which to the uninitiated must be masters or nothing yet how little the followers of aristippus made of that whole comely system of manners or morals then actually in possession of life is shown by the bold practical consequence which one of them maintained with a hard self-opinionated adherence to his peculiar theory of values in the not very amiable paradox that friendship and patriotism were things one could do without while another death's advocate as he was called helped so many to self-destruction led by his pessimistic eloquence on the evils of life that his lecture-room was closed that this was in the range of their consequences that this was a possible if remote deduction from the premises of the discreet aristippus was surely an inconsistency in a thinker who professed above all things an economy of the moments of life 
and yet those old Cyrenacs felt their way as if in the dark, we may be sure, like other men in the ordinary transactions of life beyond the narrow limits they drew of clear and absolutely legitimate knowledge, admitting what was not of immediate sensation, and drawing upon that fantastic future which might never come. A little more of such walking by faith, a little more of such not unreasonable assent, and they might have profited by a hundred services to their culture from Greek religion and Greek morality as they actually were. The spectacle of their fierce, exclusive, tenacious hold on their own narrow apprehension makes one think of a picture with no relief, no soft shadows, nor breadth of space, or of a drama without proportionate repose. Yet it was of perfection that Marius, to return to him again from his masters, his intellectual heirs, had been really thinking all the time. A narrow perfection, it might be objected, the perfection of but one part of his nature, his capacities of feeling, of exquisite physical impressions of an imaginative sympathy, but still a true perfection of those capacities wrought out to their utmost degree, admirable enough in its way. He too is an economist. He hopes, by that insight of which the old Serenax made so much by skilful apprehension of the conditions of spiritual success as they really are, the special circumstances of the occasion with which he has to deal, the special felicities of his own nature to make the most, in no mean or vulgar sense, of the few years of life. Few indeed for the attainment of anything like general perfection. With the brevity of that sum of years his mind is exceptionally impressed, and this purpose makes him no frivolous dilettante, but graver than other men. His scheme is not that of a trifler, but rather of one who gives a meaning of his own, yet a very real one to those old words. Let us work while it is day. He has a strong apprehension also of the beauty of the visible things around him, their fading, momentary graces and attractions. His natural susceptibility in this direction, enlarged by experience, seems to demand of him an almost exclusive preoccupation with the aspects of things, with their aesthetic character, as it is called, their revelations to the eye and the imagination, not so much because those aspects of them yield him the largest amount of enjoyment, as because to be occupied in this way, with the aesthetic or imaginative side of things, is to be in real contact with those elements of his own nature and of theirs, which for him at least are matter of the most real kind of apprehension. As other men are concentrated upon truths of number, for instance, or on business, or it may be on the pleasures of appetite, so he is wholly bent on living in that full stream of refined sensation. And in the prosecution of this love of beauty, he claims an entire personal liberty, liberty of heart and mind, liberty above all from what may seem conventional answers to first questions. But without him there is a venerable system of sentiment and idea, widely extended in time and place, and a kind of impregnable possession of human life. A system which, like some other great products of the conjoint efforts of human mind through many generations, is rich in the world's experience so that in attaching oneself to it one lets in a great tide of that experience and makes, as it were, with a single step, a great experience of one's own, and with great consequent increase to one's sense of color, variety, and relief in the spectacle of men and things. The mere sense that one belongs to a system, an imperial system or organization, 
has in itself the expanding power of a great experience, as some have felt who have been admitted from narrower sects into the communion of the Catholic Church, or as the old Roman citizen felt. It is, we might fancy, what the coming into possession of a very widely spoken language might be with a great literature, which is also the speech of the people we have to live among. A wonderful order actually in possession of human life, grown inextricably through and through it, penetrating into its laws, its very language, its mere habits of decorum in a thousand half-conscious ways, yet still felt to be in part an unfulfilled ideal, and as such awakening hope and an aim identical with the one only consistent aspiration of mankind. In the apprehension of that just then, Marius seemed to have joined company once more with his own old self, to have overtaken on the road the pilgrim who had come to Rome, with absolute sincerity on the search for perfection. It defined not so much a change of practice as of sympathy, a new departure, an expansion of sympathy. It involved certainly some curtailment of his liberty in concession to the actual manner, the distinctions, the enactments of that great crowd of admirable spirits who have elected so, and not otherwise in their conduct of life, and are not here to give one so to term it, an indulgence. But then, under the supposition of their disapproval, no roses would ever seem worth plucking again. The authority they exercised was like that of classic taste, an influence so subtle yet so real as defining the loyalty of the scholar, or of some beautiful and venerable ritual in which every observance has become spontaneous and almost mechanical, yet is found, the more carefully one considers it, to have a reasonable significance and a natural history. And Marius saw that he would be but an inconsistent Cyrenaic, mistaken in his estimate of values, of loss and gain, and untrue to the well-considered economy of life which he had brought with him to Rome, that some drops of the great cup would fall to the ground if he did not make that concession, if he did but remain just there. End of chapter 16, volume 2 of Marius the Epicurean by Walter Pater. Recording by Philip Gould.